When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Writing to Get Business podcast, where you'll get tips to expand your writing skills. Every week, you'll hear tips and strategies to support your writing. Pat Iyer is your show hostess, a ghostwriter, editor, and author who has written 48 books. Sit back, relax, and listen. Here's your hostess, Pat Iyer. Hey, this is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business. I'm delighted to bring to you Doug Lawrence, who is in Saskatchewan. And Doug has a, an enviable history of being a Royal Canadian Mounted Police without ever having to get on a horse. <laughs> Tell our listener, by the way, how does that work, Doug? How do you become a Mounted Police but never be on horseback? I was lucky, very lucky. So they, uh, the horses were taken out of the basic training that we all go through. They were taken out of out of that part of the training element in the late '60s, early '70s, because I went through training in 1974, and the horses were weren't in. in in the training at all at that stage. So if you wanted to ride a horse and be part of the musical ride, you had to go to Ottawa, Ontario to the headquarters where they uh, housed the horses there and where the training took place. I told Doug when we talked before about how I was a kid and went to, I think it was Montreal and saw one of the very somber, serious mounted police and that was one of my childhood memories of this brilliant red jacket and of course being about seven years old this mounted policeman looked like he was about two stories high so when I knew that Doug was in the mounted police I thought we were going to be talking about his time chasing down robbers who were hiding in buildings and he explained that he was luckily never part of that aspect of being a policeman. I, uh, I did spend some time because I think a lot of what I, what I talk about and write about and stuff involves speaking about some of that. Um, we actually had a conversation here in the last couple of days where um, we, I shared, it was actually a tele- television program that talked about in the high Arctic of how they bring in the food and all the supplies and stuff on a, on a ship and they barge it from the ship to the shore. Well, I was stationed. I was actually stationed in a small community in the Eastern Arctic where we actually went through that. We had to order our food for a year and it came in on the barge, you know, food, toilet paper, all your necessities of life. And it came in on the barge right around the Labor Day weekend, the first part of September. And 
it was so it, it was I just about jumped out of my chair because they actually made reference to the community. They said, and so now we're going to head to Hall Beach to offload all the stuff we have for them. And that was the community that we actually lived in for two years. So, dear listener, if you are ever feeling sorry for yourself because you're running low on supplies, think about people in the community who have to think ahead a year in advance and what life must be like towards that last 11th month waiting for your supplies to come in. Yeah, it yeah, it was quite interesting because you'd see people lining the shoreline waiting, looking out to sort of see <laughs> where's the ship. And sometimes it was caught up in the ice and they had to wait for the icebreaker to come and bust a path through for them to, so they could get into, you know, into the spot where they typically unloaded and, and all of that. And fuel, fuel used to be transported by uh, Hercules aircraft that they converted the interior of the plane with a bladder and they would haul fuel from you know, from different locations in order to make sure we had enough heating oil to uh, fuel the furnaces and stuff through the winter. Well, there are certainly many life lessons you could take from that story, Doug. Let's come back to your books, because I could get caught up in what it would be like living in the Arctic for a long time. Your first book was called The Gift of Mentoring, and this podcast is about the process of writing books, deciding what you're going to write about, how you write it, how that impacts your life perspective, what you do with your book or books. You were telling me earlier that your first book came out on the topic of mentoring, and I know for our listener, that word may conjure up certain concepts. In the way that you're using this word, what does the gift of mentoring mean for you? It typically, how I typically describe it for most people is that I look at the definition of of what we call, what I call mentoring. And it's a two-way trusted relationship where both the mentor and the mentee are going to learn and grow personally and professionally. And so there's a journey that they're going to go on together and the primary focus at the very beginning of that journey is on the personal growth of that individual. So when you think of that, you think of typically, you know, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-doubt, self-worth, all, as I call them, all the selves. And before we can move ahead and help somebody with their career development piece in their life. So, you know, job hunting and all that sort of stuff. We need to help make sure that they are whole as a person. And we do that through the mentoring process with a focus on their personal growth and and helping them believe in themselves and be able to start that journey towards, uh, you know, the career development that they're looking for, but doing it in such a fashion that they're doing it whole as a person. What have you seen are the issues if the person is not whole? How does that impact their lives? I can think of one individual in particular that um, was someone that was struggling getting a job and was having difficulty with their resume and was trying to get some help from another mentor. And there was just no 
chemistry, they weren't working well together. And she got referred to me. And on the very first meeting, what I determined was here was somebody with self-esteem issues. And so what we did was we kind of did what I call a makeover. And I got, you know, I want you to go home, take some yellow post-it notes and write positive affirmations on them and stick them on the mirror in the bathroom. And I want you to recite those every morning as you're getting ready. You know, I am a good person. I can do good things. I just need the chance. Thinking of everything in the positive context. And that's what, you know, we went through that journey, got that journey started with her. And what ended up happening was as we got her new resume, and it's interesting that the old resume was one that had so much negativity attached to it, that it was no wonder that nobody wanted to hire this individual or even give them a chance. And so we kind of changed that and made it a whole lot more positive. And like I was going to share was the fact that she ended up with three offers in the first week that we got the new resume into circulation. And from there, she ended up over a short period of time, she eventually got offered a position at their headquarters complex in Ontario. And so she packed up and away she went. And it was all because of a little bit of mentoring, dealing with the personal growth side of things. That's fascinating, Doug, because I I have read probably hundreds, if not thousands of resumes. And I never thought about a resume being able to convey negativity. I have seen people in interviews when I've looked for administrative assistance, when I ran my business and my employees were working inside the building with me, which seems like a little bit of an archaic model (laughs) right now. But I remember interviewing one woman who was depressed. And after she left, I told my staff, that if I were to hire her, I would need to take antidepressants because of that effect that she had. Mm -hmm. Um, Being able to turn that around must have given you a a great deal of satisfaction. It, It did. It was, you know, to be able to see her grow as an individual, it did give that, you know, you always say, so what's in it for you as a mentor? at the end of the day, at the end of these journeys. And it's actually seeing somebody grow as a, as a person first and foremost, you know, growing as a person, having that believing in themselves and sometimes even being comfortable enough to want to share that experience with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the, that's where the gratification comes. The other I actually was working with uh, an individual that, uh, and we were, we still stay connected, but she uh, she was getting married and sent me an invitation to attend the wedding. And that night at the wedding reception, both her and her husband came up to me and said, you know, we could not imagine having our wedding without having you here because of all that you've done for us. Wow. That's beautiful. That's, you know, and that's, you know, I, I don't need a check for, you know, a thousand dollars to say, here you go for a job well done. You know, in, in that particular case, 
just those words that they spoke right from the heart, that's better than any, any other mm -hmm. form of payment. Yeah, you could fly on that for several days. Yeah, most definitely. And I did, you know, I, I was, I went, wow, now I understand why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between mentoring and coaching? A lot of times when I get asked that question, I always, I always put a caveat on it that, you know, we're probably going to agree to disagree. But for me, I find that from the mentoring perspective, it, I, number one, I develop a deeper relationship than perhaps a coach may. I also uh, believe that it's more, it's more about the person and not so much about, you know, the, the tasks that they have to get done. So I typically I come at it from the, the personal side more than I do from, you know, from the, I guess from the corporate side, we'd be looking at, you know, how do we develop this person's career for their career advancement? And, you know, sometimes we have uh, things we need them to get done within a certain time period and a coach is the best one to sort of, oversee making sure that they uh, get that stuff done within the time frames where a mentor would probably kind of take a step back a bit and say okay what is it that we have to accomplish what are we going to do in order to be able to accomplish that and what are we going to do to make sure that it's done within the time frame that you feel it needs to be done by and so a lot of what I talk about in that is just different usage of words like we and us but what it is is i want them to be accountable and i want them to determine the direction that we're going going to take mm -hmm. this first book called the gift of mentoring uh, was published i think you told me in 2014 correct what was your motivation for writing that book it was, it was three or four people saying, you need to write a book. Mm. And me saying, no, I don't. And then <laughs> just, they just kept coming and saying, you need to write a book. And it was actually, ironically, one of my uh, troop members. So when we go through RCMP training, there's 32 of us go together and we go through, through the 26 weeks of training together. And so he was part of my, my troop and he retired from the force or left the force very early, I think at five years. And over time, what he had been doing was writing little inspirational messages to his, to his children. And he ended up writing a book and it was called Notes from Papa. And it was a really a, a a great idea and a great book with so much inspiration to it. And he was one of the primary ones that said, you need to write the book. You need to write the book. And so I sat down and started to think about what that would look like. And I ended up working with a ghostwriter. And what we did was we took, I'd been writing uh, just a multitude of, of uh, articles to post on my blog and so we scraped them, as I call it, scraped them off the blog and then put them into buckets, so to speak, 
to create the book, The Gift of Mentoring. And then I wrote, I think it's about six case studies that I was able to insert at various stages throughout the book. And the idea behind the book was to be able to heighten or raise awareness on the aspect of mentoring and the gift of mentoring and what it could do for you as a person and what it could do for organizations that you work in. And what I hear you did was you very effectively repurposed content that you've already written. You had building blocks and you wove them together with some case studies and some additional short pieces around a theme. So not every book has to be written from scratch. You did 90%, probably, uh, probably 90% of that work in advance. And then your job was to look at the overall piece and say, how can I fit those blocks together? And in what order? Yeah, that's correct. And And it was with the idea in mind, still staying true to why I was doing that, which was to heighten the awareness and, you know, for, for people to pick the book up and be able to go, okay, now I understand. And what was interesting was the feedback that I got from, you know, a number of people was that number one, a very easy read. Number two, it was like we were sitting on a park bench together and they could hear my voice telling the story about the gift of mentoring. And they said that was such a powerful experience that, you know, they always, their philosophy was you need to tell that story more and more often so that people can experience the gift of mentoring as, as much as the rest of us did. They were hearing your voice in the book. That's a, a phrase that caught my attention too, because Sometimes people are curious about how much of themselves should they reveal, how much of their voice, how much of their stories, how much of them can they share? And it it sounds like you were very effective in bringing your voice into your book. And I think that that's a way for us to be able to, because inside of each and every one of us, there are a number of stories that need to be told. And by doing what I did, I was able to open the door and let a couple of those stories come out. And then it was just a matter of kind of shaping them like, you know, like putty, I guess is probably the best way is shaping them into something that had meaning for me and where I could pick it up and go, yes, this is like taking a a part of me and sharing it with everyone else and being able to do that and knowing full well that that's not the end of the story. There's a lot more to tell yet. And I think storytelling is particularly fascinating because you can take that same set of facts and adjust them, present them in different order. And also, I think sometimes we take for granted our stories. We're rather matter of fact. He started the podcast talking about the story of living in an isolated Arctic community waiting a year for supplies. 
that is a story that's going to stick with our listener. You may say, well, yeah, we had to wait a year. Whereas those of us who are used to going to the store, when our milk is getting a little bit low and we know that we're going to walk in and find a whole case full of milk, we can't imagine what it would be like to live under that circumstance. And, you know, it it takes, I remember Mm -hmm. us getting transferred from the Eastern Arctic to British Columbia and to the into actually Langley, British Columbia, and my wife going to the supermarket and asking if she could order a case of lettuce. And the, the guy in the, in, the, in the supermarket said, uh, do you mind me asking why you would need a case of lettuce? Well, I need to have stuff in, in reserve. And that's what we always did up north was we ordered a case of lettuce then we could get our hands on it. He said, well, I just want you to know that, you know, our star will be here tomorrow and so will the lettuce and you can come back tomorrow and buy another egg. And it took a long time for us to, you know, readjust our behaviors to be able to better understand how things took place, you know, in a urban setting. Well, we won't talk, Doug, about the 400 rolls of toilet paper that I have in my house in Florida because I was concerned about a shortage. We have enough for about the next two years. And now yeah. that there's a rumor that toilet paper will be in short demand again, I'm, I'm feeling rather smug that I ordered two cases from Staples so that we wouldn't have to worry about running out. But lettuce is a little different. It doesn't have quite the same shelf life. And it does require a lot of storage space, I would think. You'd need another whole refrigerator just for lettuce. Yeah, that you would. That you would. Yeah, it. Uh, it's interesting how that is, how, you know, some of the things that we took for granted in, in the North from, our, you know, from a food perspective and a, all the necessities, toilet paper, paper towels, all that stuff. Now, fast forward to today and all the things that are going on in the world today. Now we're starting to experience some of the things that we've already gone through. And, you know, where people, their anxiety and their stress levels and everything else increase because of all of this stuff. And we're kind of just kind of taking it in stride and going, yeah, okay, I guess I'll Next time I go shopping, I'll, I should probably buy another case of toilet, toilet paper and just stuff it in a place, you know, store it in, in case I need it. It's not going to go bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on the top shelf in my closet. <laughs> Let's shift the focus. Your second book, which is going to be coming out in the future, is called You Are Not Alone. And just from the title, that sounds like a very different topic than The Gift of Mentoring, your first book. Tell our viewer about that second book. What drove you to write that book? So You Are Not Alone is what what drove me to write the book was, once again, uh, some people said, you need to write this book and you need to share your experiences and it it was 
it took a while to be fully convinced because the experiences that I do end up sharing are very, very personal. And they, um, they speak to, you know, some things that some of our listeners may find very difficult to have to rationalize or even to begin to think about. But the You Are Not Alone is, it's about mentoring and mental health and the aspect that mentoring can be part of the support structure for mental health. So there's today we have a shortage of, of, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, all of those people. And there's people that are kind of waiting in the wings for someone to come and help them. And they've, they've taken the step to sort of open the closet and step out of the closet and extend their hand and say, I need help, but we're not in a position to be able to provide that. And so you are not alone speaks to why not take a look at mentoring as a means to provide that, that support to someone who is trying to go on a, on a healing journey and to be able to do that. So, um, that's where the, the idea came from that. And I, I, I interviewed, I think it was six people. And they all told different stories about their experience with mental health and, and mentoring and how, how it made a difference for them. And, and their stories helped reinforce the stories that I told where I talked about actually doing the research, looking at different literature and stuff that exists on mentoring and mental health, and all of a sudden realizing that, oh my gosh, I too had experienced and was still dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, and I prefer to not call it a disorder, but uh, so from, I I had experienced post-traumatic stress, and my support structure, the people that pulled me through in my darkest time was my dear sweet wife and my two children who became my support structure and said, you know, my wife said inside of that shell of a person, I know the real Doug exists and I'm going to get that real Doug out so that, you know, we can return to somewhat of a normal life. So I share a lot of that in you are not alone. There are so many aspects of mental health and mental illness that affect all of us. None of us escape either having a family member or a friend or ourselves. Um, I'm working with a nurse who just signed an agreement to have me edit her book about being the caretaker of a mentally ill relative. She has somebody in her life now, as well as her mother who had a head injury and developed a seizure disorder after her trauma and what that meant to the family when this nurse who was 10 years old at the time had to see the changes in her mother's behavior. And then within a year, her father was killed in a fall from a telephone pole. So the whole family dynamics were affected by the needs of the mom with a family that ranged from 10 to a newborn. And I can only imagine from from the perspective of people who are looking for help, 
That's one dimension of it. The other is the toll that it takes on family members to try to help rescue that individual who needs help. So certainly it's a complex issue and it, it affects us all, as I said. Yeah, it, we don't realize how, how that circle, how it can expand and how it can impact so many different people. Like even when I look at what I went through, it was, you know, I talk about having a circle of friends, very close, very personal, very, you know, very supportive friends. But as, as your experience with mental health, post-traumatic stress and that, and your behavior that comes as a result of that starts to intensify, that circle of friends starts to close in and become even tighter because a lot of times people decide, I don't, I have enough of my own stuff to deal with. I don't need to be troubled with, you know, this person's negative behavior or, or I don't need to be troubled with, you know, the fact that this person's, you know, really a jerk because I was a really a jerk and, you know, how they deal with other people almost to the extent of saying, you know, the rest of you are to blame for how I am today. So I'm going to take this out on you. So it, you know, going through those experiences as, as well, um, it's, I think that one of the messages that I always try to get people to understand is that, you know, it's okay to reach out and ask for help. It's okay to extend your hand outside that closet door and say, help, I need help. And we, as people that are on the other side of that door, we need to be comfortable to say, here's my hand, please take it. And let's go on this journey together. Or let me see if I can help you find somebody that is, you know, from a, a professional aspect, that's going to be able to help you deal better with what it is you're experiencing. And that's kind of the, the storyline behind you are not alone is you aren't alone if you're willing to reach out for that help. And for those of us that are going to be reading you are not alone as potential caregivers or as people that may be providing that help when someone does that when they reach out you need to grab that hand right away because sometimes you don't have a lot of time to make that to create that change that needs to take place and you're thinking about um, suicide as an example for people who are running out of time the topic of that book very different than the gift of mentoring and tells a different kind of story. It sounds to me like others in your life wanted you to share your gift of your perspective of what you went through on a very personal aspect of living. What did you go through yourself to overcome your reticence about sharing that story? It, it acted as a trigger for a lot of the things that, so, and by that, I mean, every time I had to retell the story, it triggered memories of things that had taken place. 
Mm-hmm. And it was kind of, it was kind of like every time I got transferred within the RCMP to a new location, you would think, you know, fresh start, all that great stuff. But every time something would happen, you know, you witness a death or somebody would, you know, commit suicide or you'd see other things. It would trigger a flood of all these memories of what you had experienced in the previous locations that you'd been in, you know, for one of the ones that always triggers all kinds of, of not so pleasant memories was when I was in Northern British Columbia and we were putting a men's hockey team together to travel down the, uh, the road to a neighboring community to play their men's team. And we had this young lad of 16 years of age that came and practiced and tried out and the team decided that he had done well enough that, he could be a member of the men's hockey team and join us in going down, down the road and playing the neighboring community. And he, he was absolutely ecstatic. And so he should be, he made the men's team. So he went home to tell mom and dad about his accomplishments only to find as he walked through the door that they were absolutely, totally without a single doubt in my mind, absolutely drunk. And they, they wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted nothing to do with his success and everything else. And so he went into a room in the house and grabbed the, the 22 rifle and took his own life. And it gets, it, it gets more complex after that because so I'm the RCMP officer in the community, one of two, and I ended up having to uh, transport him out to a morgue, which was in the middle of winter and it was eight hours of driving with, you know, with his body in the back of the vehicle and having to drive that eight hours to take the body to the morgue and then drive back after that. And every time I think of that story, it brings back all those memories and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, how sad I was for, you know, what he had to experience when all he wanted was a simple, you know, pat on the back or a simple good job, son, you know, you've done well. And he got none of that. And that's, you know, that, that, that's a major trigger for me nowadays. Even all I need to hear is the word suicide and I immediately go right to that memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see why. It's a very sad story. Yeah. Yeah. I have a colleague who asked me to edit her book about her husband's sudden death. And she interviewed about 30 people about their experiences in becoming widows or widowers. And she found that every time she talked with a new person, it stirred up all those feelings in her. So by the time she was done, she felt the weight of everybody's grieving their losses, the changes in their lives. I compared it in a way to, there was a man in the United States who was charged with interviewing the families of the people who died on uh, 9-11. And his job was to divide up the money among all of these families. He did this for about a year. And, you know, there were 6,000 people, I believe, who were killed between New York and the Pentagon. 
and he was physically ill at the end of his job. He could not do it anymore. He completed the job, but he was so drained by that experience. He wrote about this in a book that I found fascinating from the standpoint of what he went through, what the families went through, the the various negotiations. Some families thought they were entitled to more money because, you know, the, the stockbroker's family thought they should get more than the cook's family and how he had to make those determinations that everything was going to be divided equally. You know, and that's a story that needed to be told as well, was how, you know, when you're trying to help others, how sometimes nobody takes into account what it is you're going through as that caregiver or as that individual that's responsible for you know doling out who gets how much and all that sort of stuff is we don't we don't really take into account what the toll is on that individual and we need to you know and that that can be i i met with some folks yesterday for a cup of coffee and the one individual had lost her grandmother and you could just see, you know, the, the the suffering that was going on. And, you know, we're, we all try to put on a brave face and, you know, I'm okay and I've got this and all that stuff. But, you know, when you start to see, you can see the little cracks in the, that persona to be able to say, no, you're not. And when you're ready, you know, let me know and we'll have that conversation. Mm-hmm. How will our listener get a copy of your book when it is available or reach you if they would like to connect with you in some way? So the book goes on, on uh, is goes live January 17th of next year, and it's available for pre-order now on Amazon and a number of other, I think, Barnes and Noble and a, f- a few other places. But uh, so it is available for pre-order. And if they want to get a hold of me to have that conversation, you know, whether it's just to chat or whether it's to say, I'm afraid to step out of the closet. What do I need to do? Any of those reasons. Um, you can reach me. You know, you can look at my LinkedIn profile, Doug Lawrence, and, and find me there. But feel free to reach out to me direct by email. And it's Doug dot lawrence l-a-w-r-e-n-c-e at talent c so the word talent with the word the letter c on the end dot c-a and i'll get back to you as quickly as i can all right doug can you repeat that one more time i sure can so my my linkedin profile you can go there and, and reach me through there and it's just search on doug lawrence and you should find me and then if you want to reach me by email for a little bit quicker response, you can get a hold of me at Doug.Lawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, at Talent C, so the word talent with the letter C on the end, dot C-A. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. I appreciate the range of topics that we were able to cover today from Mounted to mounted police to waiting a year for your supplies to recognizing when somebody is reaching out and asking for help. Uh, 
and being able to respond. The strain that occurs in that situation when an individual needs help and family members may not, for whatever reason, be attuned to those signals or worn down from the stress of dealing with the signals. And the fact that when you tell your story, you stir up a lot of muck in yourself as well as other people, that muck is necessary to be able to share, but it does carry a price with it that needs to be recognized, has to be dissipated, has to be dealt with in dealing with such tough subjects when you're telling your own story and sharing your story in the hopes of helping other people with their stories. No, I agree. That's the, you know, you are not alone. The idea behind that is to just get people to see the, what mentoring can do as part of the support structure. And to do that, they obviously need to hear those stories. Doug Lawrence, the author of Gift of Mentoring and You Are Not Alone. Be sure to check out Doug's books Open up a conversation with Doug if there's something that he can do to help you. And be sure to click a like, add a comment below this video if you're watching this on YouTube. Let us know what you're thinking. Thanks so much. I appreciate you listening to Writing to Get Business podcast. I am now transitioning this podcast to a membership site that focuses on writing skills for entrepreneurs. And by writing skills, I'm referring to the techniques that we need to be effective when we blog, when we write business stories, when we create website copy, when we look at opt-in reports and offers and craft those. I will be tackling with the members of Business Writing Circle many of these writing responsibilities that business owners have, as well as others. The program consists of support, knowledge, and a community of people who are dedicated to ramping up their writing skills. Business Writing Circle is a program that includes monthly training, monthly interviews, group sessions, documents, and other resources to help improve your writing, digital guides that I have created, as well as other opportunities to connect with people who are also focused on their writing skills. Here's the link that you need to get information about the program. That is http colon forward slash forward slash mywriting.tips forward slash BWC. That link again is http colon forward slash forward slash mywriting.tips forward slash BWC. You'll find that link right below me. I would love for you to go to that link, find out the information about the program, and make an investment in yourself. Ramp up your writing skills, ramp up your business. Let's make this a great year for you.
We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for writers at writingtogetbusiness.com. That is W-R-I-T-I-N-G-T-O-G-E-T-B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S dot com. Coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs work with Pat so they can get more business by writing and sharing their expertise. Check out Pat's resources on writingtogetbusiness.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.